All right. <clears throat> so we are continuing on now in our consideration of chapter 7 of God's covenant. Um, it is possible we will finish tonight. I don't think we will, but it's possible, so we'll see. Um, if not, then for sure we should be able to finish this next week. Uh, so we'll see how far we get. Um, we have two more blessings of the new covenant to consider. Um, and we're going to take these together. We're going to consider these together. So these are going to come under one heading, even though it's two blessings. And then we will finish our consideration of the other elements of the covenant as well, because I know we've been discussing specifically the blessings of the new covenant the last several weeks, but to bring you back to the broader context, we are looking at the entirety of the new covenant, and we consider some other things about it before we got to the blessings. Um, it's just that there's so many blessings that we've been on this for several weeks, and that's fine. I'm thankful that there are that many blessings, so that's fine. Um, before we get into that, um, let's look back in the confession at where we're at. So this is chapter 7, and particularly we're considering sections 2 and 3. So starting in section 2, it says, Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, he requires faith in him, that they may be saved, and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. <clears throat> All right, so the final two blessings of the new covenant that we're going to consider this evening are glorification and resurrection. So in chapter 31, section 1 of the 1689 Baptist Confession, we read, The bodies of those who have died return to dust and undergo destruction but their souls neither die nor sleep. So, confessionally, we deny the doctrine of soul sleep. We're not going to get into that. I just wanted to point it out briefly. Because they have an immortal subsistence and immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and are received into paradise. Glorification. There they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory while they wait for the full redemption of their bodies. Resurrection. Okay? And that's why we're taking it together because the confession takes it together. R.C. Sproul comments, 
Quote, as soon as we die, we are perfected. Our sanctification, which we've covered, is completed. As we enter glory, we enter into the state of sinlessness. There will be no sin there. When we get to heaven, sin will no longer be a burden to us. We will be finally free from that burden. We've talked about justification is we are positionally righteous, okay, on the basis of Christ's merit alone. Nothing we do. It's completely on the basis of Christ's merit alone. He takes away our sin when he dies on the cross. He gives us his perfect righteousness, okay? Sanctification is where we are progressively made practically holy, okay? So sin in space and time in practice is being whittled away within us. It's being killed more and more as we go along. But our final salvation, and I use that term in that context, okay, our final salvation from sin occurs at glorification, okay? We enter heaven on the basis of our justification, which is Again, on the basis of Christ alone. So we're not entering into heaven on the basis of our sanctification. I belabored that point. I'm not going to belabor it too much tonight. But I just, again, want to point that out. The moment we're justified, that's why we go to heaven. Because of Christ. But because we're justified, he does not leave us in our sinful estate. He saves us from the penalty of our sin in justification, but he also saves us from sin itself in sanctification, which is completed in glorification. Okay? So that is to say, we are glorified the moment we die and enter the direct presence of our Savior. From that moment through eternity, we are able to enjoy full, unhindered communion with God because not only is the penalty for sin removed, as in justification, but sin itself is removed. However, we continue to await the final blessing of the covenant at that point. So assuming we die before Christ returns, okay, we are disembodied, we go to heaven. All right? We wait for the final blessing, which is the resurrection of our redeemed bodies. Okay? All right. uh, Looking again in chapter 31, this time in section 2 of the confession, we read this. At the last day, so that is the last day, Those saints who are found alive will not sleep, but will be changed. All the dead will be raised up with the very same bodies, not different ones, though they will have different qualities. Their bodies will be united again to their souls forever. This is the Christian hope. Not just that in a disembodied state we'll go to heaven. This is what it points to finally our resurrected, glorified bodies, okay? So now we are justified, we are fully sanctified, we are glorified, and we are resurrected in physical bodies, the same physical bodies, though changed. Louis Burkhoff comments, quote, 
The reward of the righteous is described as eternal life. That is not merely an endless life, but life in all its fullness, without any of the imperfections and disturbances of the present. The fullness of this life is enjoyed in communion with God, which is really the essence of eternal life. They will see God in Jesus Christ face to face, will find full satisfaction in Him, will rejoice in Him, and will glorify Him. We should not think of the joys of heaven, however, as exclusively spiritual. There will be something corresponding to the body. There will be recognition and social intercourse on an elevated plane. It is also evident from Scripture that there will be degrees in the bliss of heaven. Our good works will be the measure of our gracious reward, though they do not merit it. Notwithstanding this, however, the joy of each individual will be perfect and full. End quote. So, uh, with that, we will turn to the scriptural witness of these things. Um, before I do that, is there any discussion or anything on any of that? What you were reading earlier about at the point of death, where, where were you reading that from? Uh, that was in the confession, that was in chapter 31. And I believe what you're referencing is in section one. All right. Anything else? All right. If not, then our first passage is going to be Job chapter 19. And this will be verses 25 through 27. So Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. All right. Scripture says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another My heart faints within me. (coughs) All right. Psalm 49. And this is just one verse, verse 15. Psalm 49, verse 15. It says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, death. For he will receive me. Selah. Psalm 73. Verses 21 through 26. Psalm 73, verses 21 through 26. It says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. 
Whom, I, uh, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isaiah chapter 26. <clears throat> In verse 19. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, it says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel chapter 12. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 4, particularly paying attention to verse 2. I'm just reading these other ones to make sure we have some proper context, but really we're looking at verse 2, but we're going to read 1 through 4. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written... In the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Okay, Hosea. It's the very next book. Hosea chapter 13. In verse 14. Okay, Hosea chapter 13. Verse 14, it says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Okay, so this is what? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six Old Testament passages, and I'm sure we did not exhaust them. Um, So I just want to point out Uh, rightly did the Lord speak when he said to the Sadducees that they did not understand nor did they believe the scriptures because the Old Testament that they had clearly testifies to a resurrection at the end. But that is not where we will stop. John chapter 5. 
John chapter 5, and particularly verses 25 through 29. So at John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, it is um, the Lord Jesus who is speaking in this passage. And he is speaking to his Jewish opponents who are wanting to kill him. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And we, uh, we've seen this mentioned now, I think at least in two passages, but just point this out. There is a resurrection of those who are not in the covenant. But as you see in this passage, it is not a resurrection uh, to look forward to. <laughs> um, we are particularly uh, wanting to focus on the resurrection of life, not the resurrection of judgment. Okay, so that's really where we're kind of trying to hone in here. Uh, <clears throat> Romans chapter eight. And we're going to look at two separate parts of this same chapter. First. Um, verse 11, it's Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 11, but then uh, skip down to verse 28, okay? So verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And then if we skip down to verse 28 and then read through 30, we read this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He finished his work. He also glorified. Now, <clears throat> this next passage, perhaps one of the most critical as, as to the resurrection of the saints. It is longer, so bear with me because this is a very, very long passage. Um, 58 verses to be exact. We are going to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I realize it's long, but it's that important. I'm not skipping that. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we are reading the entire chapter. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, 
unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Let me pause for a minute. That's a really good assurance passage, actually. <clears throat> anyway. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So in Paul's thinking, it's all or nothing. Okay? And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul would not have thought much of modern liberal Christianity. <laughs> Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? This is not a stamp of approval for said, okay? This is just a line of argumentation, okay? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? In other words, if they've completely perished, why would you be baptized on their behalf? They're gone. He's not putting a stamp of approval on this practice. In fact, Paul would deny this practice. This is an anti-biblical practice. But if that were the case, why would you do that? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. 
What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see that? Adam became a living being. But the second Adam gives life. Okay? What we just read in John, he has life in himself. <clears throat> but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and we just read it, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. None of that should be skipped. All right. <clears throat> Paul was not done. Second Corinthians. <laughs> the Corinthian church didn't get it the first time. He repeated it for him a second time. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And this is verses 1 through 10. So not quite as long. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. 
it says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Philippians chapter 3. And this is going to be verses 20 and 21. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. <clears throat> all right. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. And this will be verses 13 through 18. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 through 18. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not uh, grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For... The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And finally, Revelation. Chapter 21. And this will be um, verses 1 through 7. So, last book in the Bible, Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. 
It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's an amazing passage. Um, <clears throat> as we come to the end of our consideration of the blessings of the new covenant, Sam Renahan sums it up well when he says this, quote, The supreme blessing of the consummated new heavens and earth, the pinnacle of blessing of the covenant of Christ, is seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ himself. For what gift could be superior to the giver? And what present is greater than the presenter? And what promise is greater than the promiser? And what satisfaction is there in any created thing that could rival or replace the supreme blessing of being in the presence of one's creator. As the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. End quote. In other words, the greatest blessing of the new covenant is Jesus. All right. Anything on that before we move to this? Next little portion. We may stop early. I am going to go ahead and cover covenant curses, but let's go ahead and uh, any discussion on any of that so far. All right, if not, then we'll move on to the covenant curses of the new covenant. <clears throat> this one is simple. This is an unbreakable covenant. There are no curses. Next. <laughs> Seriously, that's it. Uh, federal head. Prophet, priest, and king. Of course, this is Jesus Christ. I'm not going to delve into his federal headship, his being our prophet, his being our priest, or his being our king in this covenant right now. And the reason for that is because this makes up a very significant portion of the next chapter in chapter 8. That entire chapter is on Christ our mediator, and particularly... He mediates this covenant we're talking about, and he serves all those functions I just named as the mediator of that covenant. So it's not that we're not going to look at it. It's just that 
it's got its own chapter, and so I'm going to wait till we get there, okay? But for right now, just know our federal head is Christ, our prophet is Christ, our priest is Christ, our king is Christ. All right? All right. Um, <clears throat> the purpose of the covenant. Um, first, the purpose of the covenant is to fulfill the previous covenants. I know this has been a really long, drawn-out series on the covenants, but you'll remember we've talked about this. All of those covenants that were prior to the new covenant, okay, they were all pointing forward to Jesus Christ and His covenant. Okay, So once it came and has come, it is now present, all of those are fulfilled in Christ. Okay, And that is one of the purposes of, of the new covenant is to fulfill all of those covenants of promise. Sam Renahan states, quote, the new covenant is the fulfilled covenant of redemption. Remember, that is the intertrinitarian covenant. Okay? The new covenant is the fulfilled covenant of redemption mediated to those for whom the Son was appointed head in the covenant of redemption. The new covenant is God the Father covenanting to sinners forgiveness of sins and eternal life based on faith in God the Son, through whom they receive all the benefits. The eternal, resurrected, new creation life that Jesus obtained when he kept the covenant of redemption is offered to the world in Christ by the Father. The new covenant is a kept covenant of works, mediated to the world. The old covenant longed for completion and fulfillment. It longed for faithfulness. The new covenant is a covenant already completed, already kept, and delivered to Christ's people. Jesus Christ is the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. And that scriptural language that comes from Hebrews. Actually, let's go ahead and just read that. I didn't actually put that in my notes, but let's read that. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. Uh, chapter 7 is talking about the Melchizedekian priesthood. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus. Okay, And the idea there is it's an eternal priesthood. Okay, And he is the, as such as it being an eternal priesthood, nobody precedes him, nobody succeeds him. So it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant and then in uh, Hebrews 8 6 <clears throat> it says but as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises and then Hebrews chapter 12 verse 20. Four, it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, Christ's covenant is superior. And of course it is, because all the other ones were pointing to it. It fulfills all of those. Uh, also on this point, the, to fulfill previous covenants, 
Uh, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In verses 19 through 22. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 19 through 22. Second Corinthians chapter one verses nineteen through twenty two it says for actually let me back up I just realized what's above that <laughs> uh, let's actually start in verse eighteen it says as surely as God is faithful our word to you has not been yes and no for the Son of God Jesus Christ whom we proclaimed among you Sylvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no but in him it is always yes for all the promises of God. Find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's Trinitarian work. Another purpose, and perhaps the last heading um, that it fulfills the previous covenants, perhaps even that should fall under this heading. The purpose of the covenant is the salvation of the elect unto the glory of God. Classic passage on this. And yes, I am going there. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> this is where we're going to leave off tonight is uh, with this point. Um, we will probably have a shorter lesson next week because um, we do not have a whole lot more to cover, but I do not want to try to cover the rest of this and start something else. So I'm just fair warning, next week's probably going to be a kind of short lesson. But that's okay. Y'all probably need a break. <laughs> um, but on this point that the covenant is... it's primary purpose is the salvation of the elect unto the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the point of creation itself. Okay, this, Everything that exists, exists for Christ. We'll have plenty more passages in the next chapter, but just everything is about Christ. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined 
according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All right, that's where I'm going to stop as far as my teaching is concerned tonight. Do we have any discussion or questions or anything of that nature? <clears throat> okay, if not, then I'll go ahead and just give you a heads up. That way you can be studying it and be ready next week. The only thing we have left to cover in the New Covenant is the sacraments, or if you prefer the ordinances, of the New Covenant. So those, of course, are only baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Um, if nobody has anything else, let's dismiss with a word of prayer, okay? Father, again we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with thankful hearts, because what a testimony we have read tonight. Um, what reason for hope, uh, what reason for joy, for assurance, um, for obedience. Um, you are a great and gracious God, and we thank you that you have freely chosen to bestow your grace on us uh, Certainly we don't deserve that grace. Um, we know our wretched estate before you as sinners. We have violated your law. We deserve your wrath. But you had better things in mind for us because you're good. And that's why you get the glory. And so we glorify your name. We pray that you would help us to do so with the way we live our lives, not just outward works, although certainly that factors in, but even our inner thought life, uh, the way we think, the way we pray, the way we talk to others, our, everything about us. Give us that sanctification unto glorification that we talked about tonight. We thank you that you will complete that which you have started in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.